I'm Alina Utrada, and this is The Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. So hi, everyone. Today we're here with Josh Simons, who's a PhD candidate in government at Harvard University, who's actually defending his PhD next week. Um, Mm -hmm. And he's also a labor candidate for local office in in the United Kingdom. So hi, Josh. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me. So maybe we could just start with you telling us a little bit about your research. Um, What is machine learning? Why is it political? And what can it tell us about how we should approach the tech industry? Yeah, um, so the place that the research fundamentally grew out of um, was from sort of two places. Um, One was some work I was doing um, in the UK um, when I was working in parliament and the um, investigatory powers bill which is um, the major piece of legislation that governs how the um, security services in the UK can use and process data um, was going through Parliament. I um, was talking to people involved uh, and asking how they process this enormous volume of information that they, you know, like a sort of one of those huge fishing nets sweep up. How do they find, you know, crime or um, intent in that mess? and they started explaining how data analysis effectively works on that scale. Um, and it got me interested partly because it was abundantly clear to me that there was an enormous lack of knowledge about what this set of techniques were, you know, how they worked, what the implications were for policy and law and governance and so on. So I started reading computer science, um, you know, with a very limited background in statistics, that's it. Um, and so finding that like, you know, 70 to 90% of the papers I read, read, went straight over my head. Um, but that actually the, the basic statistics was enough to identify some of the crucial kinds of points of choice um, involved in the computer science argument. Um, so I then essentially had the good fortune of being put in touch with Cynthia Dwork, um, who is um, one of the founding scholars in the both the fair machine learning field and the differential privacy field um and she essentially encouraged me to go away and identify the discrete choices involved in building a predictive tool of any kind using data to predict something um and the more i did that and the more i sort of applied that set of choices um to the cases that i was reading about in the press the more it became clear to me that each one of those choices um, involved a set of moral and also interest-based consideration. Some people won, some people lost, and more often than not, there were values involved in making those choices. Um, and what that essentially meant was that built into the process of designing a machine learning model are a set of moral and political choices um, that therefore mean any question about how to govern or regulate or use that set of tools inevitably has to wrestle with those questions and think about who should make them, how, when, why, and so on. So maybe we could just talk about like, do you have an example of an instance in which somebody is using an algorithm or machine learning and and when you really, you know, unpack it, it becomes clear that there is like a political 
or philosophical like value judgment being made there? The, the thing that I think makes machine learning an interesting subject of study and why I ended up hitting on that, you know, set of techniques and tools, but also phrase is that it gets at um, the fundamental importance of prediction um, and probability and all rated, related considerations to all of the moral and political questions you might ask about you know, those who use machine learning. So fundamentally, it's about prediction. So here's two examples, slightly different examples, but I think they might, they helpfully bring out different components of what matters about making those choices in machine learning. One is the um, example that Virginia Eubanks developed of the Allegheny family screening tool, um, which originally wasn't machine learning. It was a more straightforward model, but became machine learning. And essentially what that tool does is predict, its, its goal is to try and predict the risk of a child suffering abuse and neglect. What it actually originally did was predict the probability that if call screeners who are receiving calls about allegations of abuse and neglect decide that the allegation is not sufficiently serious to warrant further investigation, what is the probability that um, the office will receive another call reporting that child, re-referral, it's a technical term. The choice to predict that outcome built in a kind of racial bias because African-American families, for reasons that are effectively irrelevant, are disproportionately likely to be called in and referred by other residents that they live with than white um, families. And that meant that the choice to, to, to predict that target variable, that particular thing was itself political in the sense that it had consequences for different social groups. You know, the other set of choices that were really important in that case were the choices about how to construct the data on which the thing was trained. Almost all the data that they predicted the probability of re-referral was um, public administrative interaction with the welfare system slash criminal justice system data. And that of course disproportionately represents African-American families and low-income families and so you have this two sets of apparently technical choices about the data that it's trained on and the thing that it's predicting, um, both of which end up producing a predictive tool that disproportionately, as Eubanks puts it, profiles the poor. So that's one example. The second example is like an imaginary example. Suppose um, a company like Facebook is building a, a predictive tool that's supposed to predict whether particular pieces of content are hateful. Um, you know, prompts animus against a particular group, for example. In order to do that, Facebook has to define in words what they mean by hateful. And then they have to actually create an enormous training data set of labeled examples of stuff that is hateful. Um, and people have to actually label those examples. And Facebook has to write guidelines that tell people what to look for in terms of the hatefulness of content. Um, and any way they do that, not only makes assumptions about, you know, what the proper role of so-called hateful content is in public debate and whether it should be essentially diverted away from people's attention, but also, for example, the fact that hatefulness is the same thing for all different groups in society or hatefulness has the same relevance um, to all different kinds of conversations that might happen on Facebook. Um, and so in both of those contexts, when you're actually designing the predictive tool, choosing what it's going to predict and what data it's going to learn from, you cannot but make 
choices that benefit some people over others and bake in some values over others. Um, and as soon as you see that and recognize that fundamentally building predictive tools is a political exercise, it involves the exercise of power, you then have a whole set of questions on top of that that follow from examples like that. In your research, you've called for Facebook and Google to be regulated as democratic utilities. So tell us a bit about like, how does the political nature of machine learning kind of relate to, to how we should both think about like what these systems are and, and how we should think about like democratic or state governance of them? Yeah, so there's a, a sort of interim step, I think, that's helpful to think about um, between recognizing the political character of prediction and a particular proposal about how to govern, say, Facebook and Google, which is a democratic utilities idea, which is that if you recognize that these tools and the process and choices involved in building them are political, it tells you something about the kind of regulatory solution we should be looking for, namely that any sort of putatively neutral or um, efficiency-focused um, or technocratic way of regulating them is unlikely to recognize that political character and isolate it, surface it, you know, subject it to the kind of scrutiny and authorized decision-making that you know, democracy aspires to. Um, so I think that like that interim step is to check and look at whether the different ways we instinctively draw on to, to regulate the tool and those who build it sort of suffer from that aspiration for a kind of technocratic solution. Um, and what the democratic utility idea comes from is a recognition that the question of who makes the choices about the design of say Facebook's newsfeed or the you know toxicity example that I just gave is just as important as the guardrails that the state might impose on that process of building. Um, and it's not an either or thing, but we've tended to focus way more on the guardrails question, the privacy guardrails question or the competition rules guardrails question than we have on the who, um, the who and the how. And the fundamental like thought in the idea of regulating Facebook as a and Google as a public utility, but a different kind of public utility is that the who makes the choice and how they make the choice through what process of decision-making is as important as the guardrails that are imposed. So it sounds like what you're saying is Google and the decisions that Google and Facebook make are never not political, even if they're hiding behind like a technical explanation of, of what their systems are like. Exactly. hundred percent. And I think that it's under it's people sort of intuit this like we feel this all the time um and the sort of cynicism that you get around you know when ceos of facebook google go out and say oh this is what we're doing on why and everyone's kind of like huh yeah really <laughs> um like what that's getting at i think is that people recognize that there are politics built into you know those commitments those choices and what we're not very good at though is talking about okay so what does that mean how should that change how we think about what they do and how we govern them and stuff? Mm -hmm. So maybe you could walk us through, I mean, so you've called in your research, you've called Facebook and Google like informational infrastructure. Um, so like, it seems like one of the things that's happening here is like, there's a monopoly monopolization of like information streams. So like previously you could say the same thing about different newspapers, for instance, that like, of course, like we think of course what, 
what stories newspapers decide to put on their front page, like how they pitch them, how, you know, the ordering question is a little bit different because there's many layers of involvement, but it's kind of a similar, um, you know, a, a similar analogy. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean, or, or maybe it does, but like we wouldn't necessarily say, okay, we need to regulate um, newspapers as public utilities, for example. So, so what's different about Facebook and Google and what they're doing um, that would, uh, where, a, you know, like a public or democratic utility model makes sense? Yeah, I think that the most helpful way to think about the difference between those things um, is to actually, even though I think the physical infrastructure sort of way of thinking can be distracting and lead you down wrong paths when thinking about machine learning, algorithms. I think it is helpful to think about them in terms of physical infrastructure to get at that question. Um, and so if you imagine Facebook like a, an actual physical public square, you know, but imagine there's only one in a town of, you know, 20,000 people or whatever. Facebook doesn't, you know, the, the newspaper analogy would be when somebody comes into the square, like what are the set of pamphlets that they might get? And it might be that like, one corporation happens to own, there are only three major pamphlets and one corporation happens to own all three of them. Um, and that might be a problem. So you might have, you know, anti-monopoly toolkit to, to get at that problem. Um, but the Facebook power fundamentally is much more architectural than that. Um, because what the power to design, you know, newsfeed, group recommendation tools and so on means is that as somebody enters the public square, the order of things that they see and therefore the probability that they will engage with each of those and how they will engage is determined by whoever controls the square in this case facebook um, and similarly when they then walk around the square and you know check out different groups and have different conversations which groups they encounter you know what conversations they'll hear are all determined by the um ranking algorithms that facebook build and so what that means is that um, the probability, that the chance that somebody will behave in the way that Facebook predicts they will behave or Google predicts they will behave, is it shelf-shaped by the action that Facebook and Google take, namely showing you the content that they predict you'll click on. And that kind of power gets at a deeper concern that I think we have about um, Facebook and Google than we in some ways have ever had, although I think there are interesting exceptions to that, to newspapers, which is that they fundamentally sort of bit by bit shape and construct who we are and our opinions, how we relate to fellow citizens, you know, how we organize, how we mobilize, um, and that that power is corrosive of a certain kind of agency. Um, and I think that that more architectural form of power than a set of sort of individual trade-off choices about stories is a more helpful way to, it's, it's kind of harder and more nebulous and like more taxing in a way, but it's a more helpful way to get at really what it means to design, you know, a search ranking system, for example. Mm -hmm. So it's not just controlling our, what, what information we get in the same way as a newspaper, it's really fundamentally creating the architecture of how we interact online. Exactly. So in that sense, what would kind of in a practical sense, a public utility regulation look like? So if the US or the UK said tomorrow, yeah, let's do this. 
um, what would happen? So number one, it would require federal legislation in the US um, and you know legislation in the UK as well, but it poses a distinct set of problems, as you know, in the US. Um, but let's just like set aside the Supreme Court um, <laughs> because it just generally makes life more interesting, I think, kind of. Um, you would need legislation that would do basically two things. Number one, it would have to establish a regulator that has responsibility for regulating this particular category of companies. Um, and what I think is distinctive about how I think we need to think about regulating Facebook and Google is that that regulator shouldn't just say what they can't do. It should specify different ways in which uh, decisions about the designs of those things are made, i.e. they answer the who decides question as well as the what they can decide question. Um, and that could in practice mean, you know, all kinds of things from like having mini publics that scrutinize particular principles built into newsfeed, for instance. Um, not because mini publics mean that, you know, yay, we've got the whole of like America sitting in the room as we design newsfeed, but because they bring in a wider set of stakeholders and interest groups into scrutinizing assumptions that lay behind those design choices. So that's thing number one. You would have to establish a regulator that has responsibility not only for what they can't do, but also for how decisions are made about the design of their machine learning systems. Um, and then thing number two is that you would have to specify some criteria about who is this kind of company, who, who, who's classed as a democratic utility. Um, and I, you know, there are economic answers to that questions and there are political answers to that questions. I actually think it's not as much of a hard problem as people have made out um, and also would be driven much more by democratic politics than anything more technocratic than that. Um, but the legislation would have to specify that. Um, and what's sort of interesting about those two things when you combine them is you have the legislation, you know, let's call it the data and platforms agency. It exists, you know, have to establish a relationship with the FTC and the FCC and so on. But that's not really a sort of end state. That's just establishing the structure for, for governing Facebook and Google and other democratic utilities. What that structure involves would change over time. Um, and I think that's really, really, really important as a sort of component of any regulatory solution we develop. It's like, we don't know what the right kinds of choices and guardrails or even how to operationalize guardrails are when designing Facebook's newsfeed or Google search. Um, we have some pretty good ideas, but we need to build in structures for learning about what those should be over time. And so I think that fundamentally any legislation and in particular on the public utility model has to establish and be clear about what that structure is and what the check-in points essentially are along that journey. So it sounds like Thinking about this, there was a really interesting article from Ryan Mack um, recently at BuzzFeed, which was talking about um, uh, Facebook came up with this decision to ban Alex Jones from their platform. And they came up, you know, all of the teams came up with policies or whatever. And then Mark Zuckerberg stepped in at the like, at the very end was like, no, I don't like this. And the, the whole corporation changed. Um, so it sounds like from if, if a public utility or a democratic utility model is is cares about the question who decides it seems like there would be implications for corporate governance as well yeah absolutely and i think this nexus between um corporate governance and the whole set of debates around corporate governance reform 
And the public utility model is one of the most fertile and interesting sort of areas of open questions. Um, and more concretely, so Facebook has an oversight board. And you know, every time I've talked about the sort of democratic utility idea in the past, the question has been, well, isn't that kind of what Facebook is doing? Um, and there are like two crucial ways of distinguishing it that I think help bring out the corporate governance kind of implications. Um, one is that as you know, several really good pieces have identified recently, Facebook's oversight board is not responsible for designing any of Facebook's machine learning models or even setting principles that should go into the design of any of those machine learning models. It's only responsible for setting precedent on individual um, takedown decisions about content. That effectively means that it's impotent um, or close to, like a tiny fraction of what you see when you open Facebook is determined by decisions made by humans about what should be taken down. Almost all of it's made by ranking algorithms and sometimes integrity algorithms. Um, so number one, any corporate governance reform that is about designing stuff or any corporate governance reform to have teeth has to end up being about how we design machine learning models, not just about how we take down content. Um, and so that means like taking a slice in a way of the company that runs from engineers building particular machine learning models right up through to you know, CEOs and shareholders and so on. The second thing that's different is that you can kind of think of the public utility um, framework on the sort of broader view of what it is and where it comes from as a sort of hook for experimenting with corporate governance reform. Um, like we don't know exactly what the best way would be to structure Facebook's governance or Google's governance in um, in a sort of public utility framework. But what we do know when it's thought of as a kind of utility is that working out how it should be governed is a crucial part of what we need to do. That's like part of our job is to, is to get to the bottom of that. And so it kind of basically provides a hook for experimenting with corporate governance reform. Um, and that like hook is so important because we're experimenting with decision-making about like designing infrastructural machine learning systems. That's a pretty new thing. Um, and what we need is to, a sort of anchor point to come back to as we do that. Mm -hmm. I think, well, two things. One that's quite interesting um, that you've mentioned in your research um, and, and other scholars have, have researched is that um, you start out with, you know, a description of America, the, the US in um, sort of like, it's early days in which being a like getting the right to incorporate was not a right, right? It was passed by legislative charter. Um, and there was a very clear, there had to be a very clear next nexus between the public interest and what the corporation was doing. Um, whereas now we just think, you know, corporations are almost a dime a dozen, right? Of course. Mm -hmm. Um, so so then when a lot of people hear or I imagine when when people hear about the public utility model and what, what you're describing, like, you know, their reaction is like, that's not fair, right? Like mm -hmm. we built these corporations, like Mark Zuckerberg, this was his idea. Like he built it up from nothing. People, people put in the money. Um, we have a right to do things. Um, and even the, even the anti-monopoly approach is sort of like, Okay, you've just become too powerful. We gotta, we gotta kind of set you back a few, a few steps, but you, you carry on as much as possible um, within, you know, the private economic realm. Whereas this seems a little bit more like 
you know, it's not completely nationalization, but it's definitely the government coming in and saying like, we're going to tinker with your company. So how, how would you like, do you think that's a fair characterization? How would you respond to that? Is that overstating it too much or, or, or what, what, what would be your response to that kind of like criticism? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, one small thing to say, which I know, you know, is kind of probably obvious, um, but it's always worth saying out loud is that the fairness argument, you know, depends on a view of corporations being founded, grown, you know, hiring people, etc. in a vacuum, you know, without the state, without the public education system, without all of these things. And like, this is an old response to the to the general fairness thing, but it is always worth saying out loud, especially in the kind of hype around startups and entrepreneurialism in Silicon Valley, like the infrastructure that you know, the state and those funded by the state provides is essential for any corporation to exist. And like, you know, google.stanford.edu, case in point. Um, but the more fundamental and I think interesting point about that is that there are kind of like two views about what public utilities are. And I think you have to really get to the bottom of what they are in order to, to think about the sort of fairness, you know, state imposition question. One is like what we've come to think of public utilities as, you know, basically electricity providers, railroads, um, gas, municipal providers of public goods, whether it's like one pipe or one cable or, you know, one something. We have a kind of one image of them. And like that's bad because, you know, one is generally bad. And particularly if there's only one, whoever controls the one clearly makes you vulnerable and has no incentive to be good. Um, so that's what public utilities are. And that like is an important part of what public utilities are, but it was never and should not be the whole of what they are. Um, the idea is so much broader and more dynamic than that. And fundamentally the concern, you know, in the progressive era and then again in the new deal era, and even, you know, a bit before that in the late 19th century, the concern was about how different types of concentrated private power affect, you know, the conditions of a flourishing democracy. Um, and if you start thinking about a flourishing democracy and that being your fundamental concern, well, then you recover this way of thinking about corporations, which is that they have a duty to support the conditions of a flourishing democracy. We all do and all the institutions that we're members of do. Now, the fact that they are corporations may well be relevant to how they discharge that duty, you know, how um, a legislature might, you know, sort of structure the obligations it imposes on a corporation might be different to a government body for good reason. But like starting from that place where the question is, how should corporations, what obligations, responsibility do they have to keep over time helping to support the conditions of a flourishing democracy? I think is fundamentally both what public utilities were about in the early 20th century and also a an, un, an unlocking way to get out of this really you know sort of stolid debate about um whether states have the right to take away you know ceos who founded their own company's money um, and what's really interesting about it in the case of facebook and google specifically is that facebook and google think that too they say that all the time our job is to like help democracy grow, help society get more connected. And, you know, sometimes it's explicitly about democracy. Sometimes it's a little bit more coded into the language they use, but like you've got, you know, 
hundreds of pages of speech excerpts that you can sort of lay at the door to say, well, you recognize that you have that responsibility. Well, we, the legislature, we Congress think that that's what this means in concrete terms. Um, so I just think it's an interesting case of almost, you can hold that rhetoric to account for the promises it makes in precisely the kind of like early view of what public utilities are. Yeah, then you get to the point of, do they believe it or are they just saying it? Um, but no, no, it's right, a good point. Right. Um, then, then the second question is, you know, if you take a more, and I really like that framing, right? If you take a more, if you take the demic, like the flourishing democracy of your starting as your starting point and say like, okay, corporations aren't just profit maximizing entities. You guys actually have obligations as like democratic citizens or, or whatever. Um, then does it just matter for things that you would consider utilities? Because in that sense, it seems like there is there is a broader argument for a wider kind of like quote unquote new bargain with corporations. So so if so if that is indeed the framing, why focus on just utilities? Yeah, and that that is basically exactly the heart of my own concerns about that framing is that it takes people down a kind of mental rabbit hole in a way that isn't always productive. Um, and so like the short answer is, I don't really care what term we use. We can talk about something different. You know, it doesn't have to be utility. You know, we can talk about um, just general corporate obligations to support democracy and the conditions of a flourishing democracy. We can talk about, you know, use the language of corporate governance reform. You know, you can use the language which is often less politically contentious, particularly in the US, but sectoral regulation, fine. You know, fundamentally what I care about and what I think we don't do enough is check that we're having the right conversation and asking the right question. Um, and the reason why I think the public utility sort of history and framework is helpful to, to do that with is kind of two things. Um, and this is not, neither of these I think constitute a, oh, therefore obviously we should definitely keep talking about public utilities. They're kind of contingent political fundamentally or rhetorical judgments. One is that they have that history. Um, you know, it really matters that when you start reading the, you know, late 19th, early 20th century, people who are thinking about this stuff and trying to draw on, you know, common law and like um, police powers law and so on, that they are actually talking about democracy and what it means and what corporate power means in a democracy. Um, and being able to draw on that history is both rhetorically powerful, but it also means that, you know, there are hooks within our case law um, and history that you know fit with that kind of approach. So that's one reason why I think it's worth doing the history. But the second thing is that um, there's a certain kind of, I think, inability sometimes when thinking about corporate power to just find terms that serve as placeholders for forcing us to ask that question. You know, let's take a step back here, let's think about democracy, let's think about how this particular thing we're talking about relates to democracy. And I think it's just useful to have a label for that um, as a kind of anchor point. Um, and sometimes I get concerned that like public utilities or democratic utilities is not the right way of doing that because it takes you down this electricity threshold. Um, but I, you know, we need to have one and given that history, I can't think of many that are better placed than that. Yeah, it just seems like a good way to start the conversation then you're saying. Right. So in that sense, I'm wondering then how 
um, a democratic utility or, or, the, or this new framing about corporations, then would think about the business model. So if you think about like Facebook and Google right now are primarily, I mean, they just, you know, their business model is that to take data and then use that data and sell it to digital advertisers, essentially. Um, so two questions come on from that. The first is if the state regulates it as a public utility, um, you know, and utilities in the past, you kind of, the idea is you get for what you pay for, right? Like it's not that electricity companies are advertising to you, right? Like they just sell you the electricity. Um, so, so are there implications for now, you know, how we think about the business model? And then the second question on that, if we are regulating them as public utilities, like we're saying these, this is important to the flourishing of democracy. Um, so what happens if they go broke, right? Like what happens if, you know, there's a bubble in digital advertising and pff, we've regulated these things as public utilities and then tomorrow Facebook and Google turn around and say, thanks very much. Uh, we don't have any money. Um, does that impose some obligation on like the state to then somehow float, float these corporations? Yeah, that's a great question. Is Facebook too big to fail? Um, okay, let's come back to that one. Because um, I think the first one in a way is um, sort of more familiar territory in general in this debate, um, but I think quite often set up as a binary. Um, and, and the binary basically is, on the one hand, you have like, you know, the European Commission who've publicly said, they think Facebook and Google should go to a, you know, subscription model. Well, actually Facebook, they said that about. And so in general, the association with the public utility idea is, well, if you regulate them as public utilities, then surely that's going to mean some kind of subscription model based shift in, enforced by the state. Um, and most people, you know, think, oh, I don't want that. And so public utility out the window. The, the, I think when you start thinking about public utilities in terms of a flourishing democracy, you, you, you come at a different, you come at the question of the business model from a sort of slightly different direction, which is you're forced to ask the question, why is it bad? You know, why does it matter that Facebook's business model and Google's business model is to sell ads and design a, you know, set of ranking systems that are useful? Um, and, you know, the sort of Shoshana Zuboff, Eli Pariser work has, you know, done a great job of showing why it could be bad, um, you know, that it, addiction, attention, and that whole manipulation, useful train of thought. But the question then becomes, once we, once we hold that that's why it could be bad, we then just have to ask, like, um, what is the connection between the business model and those things? Um, and the answer there is designing machine learning models. Like, where does the filter bubble argument fundamentally come from? It's what it means to design a personalized machine learning model. Um, and I think that recognizing that designing machine learning models is what connects the, you know, world of the political economy of digital advertising, essentially, to the bad social effects that, um, you know, those writers have accused newsfeed and search ranking of having, then just allows you to ask the question, okay, well, how should we govern the design of those things differently if we're concerned about those social effects? Um, and that, like, long detour, then I think gets you back to a place where essentially you say like, well, the ad business model is, sorry, the subscription-based business model is one option that might change how those machine learning models are designed that gets around those bad effects. But there are like lots of others. 
And it might just be about changing the incentives of the designers of those systems, which regulating those public utilities in and of itself might do. So this is gonna sound like a sort of slightly evasive end point, but especially given that long rambling detour, I don't think that any definitive view about what the business model of Facebook and Google should be is, is the right place to be in right now. I think like we need to recognize the shared concerns about the incentives created by the business model currently and you know the mounting evidence of some of the bad effects of that. And then just pose the question of what are our tools and what are our options for addressing that and what might those effects be? Given that our concern is about, you know, a healthy public sphere, civic information architecture, and ultimately, you know, a flourishing democracy and kind of keep that open. Um, then on the second question, too big to fail if regulated as a public utility, it, it's the, one of the many reasons why it's a really interesting thought experiment is that um, it gets to the question of essentialness, you know, which as you know, is like fundamental to the public utility kind of way of thinking. And, you know, you don't actually die if you don't have heating, well, you might do, but like electricity, gas, water, you know, we think of as essential in a certain kind of way that, you know, going on newsfeed, we don't. And therefore, if the companies that provided those things fail, you would expect the state to, to, prop, to prop them up in a way that it doesn't seem quite right that we might do that with, um, you know, newsfeed or search. I think that the, the, the space you start to get into in which like you are in the too big to fail territory, interestingly, is less newsfeed or search ranking and more the information that underpins the design of those systems, like the data and the organization of that data. Um, and I think, you know, Google Books, for example, should the state prop up Google Books if Google were about to fail? Probably be a pretty good use of cash given the amount of, you know, information on there. So I'm, I'm kind of thinking out loud here and I'm not ultimately sure, but I think that like the information underneath the actual spaces that we interact with does start to become something that like is fundamentally worth preserving if you're a state. Yeah, I was going to say that kind of bleeds into my next question really well, which is that, you know, you've, you've, you've talked about like machine learning and the, and the importance of these corporations, Facebook and Google specifically around like Google search and Facebook newsfeed, which is sort of just like the front facing bit of what these companies do. But actually, like, as you kind of highlighted, they do so much more. So, you know, <laughs> the number of companies that disclose in their filings, the SEC, that their major risk is a dependence on Google Maps. Mm -hmm. um, and even if we say, well, there's Apple Maps, actually, no, the only corporation that, um, has the physical underlying map on top of which you build software that will show you, you know, the best route to get something is Google. Similarly, the only two corporations that, you know, trawl the web and create a web index, uh, Google and Microsoft. Um, so, so, so then, so this relates back then to the public utility question. One is it seems like there's a lot of other things besides just, you know, Facebook newsfeed and Google um, search that are essential in, in informational infrastructure things. 
Um, so should those also be included in the utility? And then the second question, it, it goes back to like how this differs from monopoly versus utility, which is that these 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 corporations, I mean, people have argued like they're monopolies, right? So like Google doesn't just have a monopoly on chirps, it has a monopoly on maps, books, right? You could, the list goes on. Should we, even in a public utility model, is there an argument for, you know, disentangling each of those things? So you don't have, an electricity company that is also a water company, for instance. Yeah, I think my, I, I think the answer to both is yes. Um, yes to, there are other bits other than search for newsfeed that need to be regulated as public utilities. And yes to, there are still good arguments for breaking up some of those components. I, um, a bit like the question of uh, what the business model should be, think that like some level of agnosticism and open-mindedness is just really important to hold onto in those questions. Um, because like for a bunch of reasons, because the connections, the specific connections between search and maps are very hard to understand from the outside. Um, now that is not an argument against breakup being feasible, for example, as Google like to say that it is, or, or nor is it an argument that like, if you break them up, your maps will just be terrible and they'll you know, send you a completely wrong direction immediately, which I tend to think is probably nonsense. Um, but it is an argument for you know, requiring empirical investigation and experiments before we reach a settled view about you know, both what should be regulated as a public utility and what should be separated from what. Um, and again, I think that like, if you start with the question of a flourishing democracy, where you start with the goal of a flourishing democracy, then it provides you with a way to reason about, you know, both what should be regulated as a you know, public utility, what should be separated as what, but also if we do regulate this particular system as a public utility, what does that mean? Like, why are we doing that? And so the reason why I think newsfeed and search, search are helpful to sort of pull out is that those are the systems that, you know, have the most discernible impact on how we you know talk to each other relates online the information we the information we consume on facebook and google you know they're not the only ones but it's very clear and because they're ranking systems you know they're the form of sort of infrastructural power involved in building them is really clear um and so for those kinds of systems and maybe only those systems maybe there are other relevant ones too like facebook's integrity systems for example we might actually want to um explore affirmative goals, you know, actual duties that are built into the design of those things, you know, like diversity or, you know, shared information and so on. Um, but that's only because of the kinds of systems that they are. Well, there's no way, well, not no way. I would be very nervous about opposing, imposing affirmative duties on different bits of Facebook and Google, maybe maps, for example. Um, I mean, maybe I'd have to think about that case more. But um, when you hold democracy as your goal, it then helps you to think about what the kinds of reasons are why you might regulate particular systems as public utilities. And then that in turn, you know, provides a sharper way of distinguishing between why we might care about different types of systems. Um, so for example, Facebook's ad system, like we might have a whole set of discrimination concerns about that and equity concerns, um, but it plays a different role and concerns around elections. Um, but it plays a very different role to Facebook's newsfeed ranking system. And therefore, we should expect and be open to the idea 
that the kinds of duties we impose or the kinds of things we want from how that system's built are different and that's okay yeah and it seems to me too one of the other nice things about like the flexible nature of of like a democratic utility model is that you'd want different things from different functions so like with facebook newsfeed right which is concerned around like democratic distribution of information you might want something like fairness doctrine right mm -hmm. like whereas with maps you might want something you know google maps could charge tiered you know give tiered um map recommendations right which we certainly wouldn't want or you know right. the um competitive nature of maps could in fact uh ruin traffic right so you saw that with ways where all of a sudden these streets that weren't getting any traffic before suddenly had traffic jams and so you might say in that sense like actually government coordination of traffic is really important to avoiding mm -hmm. you know problems with you know widespread um traffic so then in that sense i wonder is there a is there a tipping point so i'm thinking about like how would things like twitter and parlor fit into the democratic utility model right is there like because on you know at the one hand it seems very very obvious right like facebook is very, has a important hold on information infrastructure um it, it, but in terms of things like newsfeed in terms of like where you get your news it seems quite possible that that could be subject to competition so like so then you know two questions sort of emerge out of that at what point do these smaller competitors parlor twitter i mean twitter isn't really a small competitor but you get the idea like at what point do they qualify under this democratic utility model and at what point are they just so small they're you know what do whatever and similarly then can the reverse happen so could we get to a point in 10 years or whatever where no one uses facebook for information and yet we're still regulating them so could they become not you know not utilities in a certain point in a, in a way that i don't know that electricity and water might be able to do in the same way right because you you don't you never i mean maybe if we do energy diversity or something where we, we're we're alternating energy sources but i don't ever see like water people just stop consuming it right right, <laughs> right. Important. yeah no and i th i think that basically i think that the answer again is yes and yes so twitter's too small so it's not a public utility like we can come back to that and then also if facebook were less big it also shouldn't be a public utility i think the like deep you know your thought at the end there is the really tricky one and this is about mm -hmm. how you know public utility style regulation relates to competition policy you know the sort of Law and economics, it's something that Jason Furman's UK report, for example, opens by arguing, is that if you regulate something as a public utility, then you are effectively giving up on competition. And even by the act of regulating something as a public utility, diminishing the chances of effective competition. Um, and so there is on that view a tension between these two things. Like if we regulate Facebook as a public utility, we're reducing the chance that Facebook will ever not be, you know, effectively a a form of utility um and actually potentially the chance that twitter might one day prove a reasonable challenger i think that like i think it's both empirically wrong um for for this kind of domain and historically wrong um you know despite there clearly have been essentially corrupt relationships between um companies regulated as utilities and local government in particular but like more fundamentally i think it's kind of besides the point if you think that certain types of systems, machine learning systems, 
have a sufficiently profound effect on the character of public debate and you know how citizens organize together to achieve change that it really matters for democracy democracy trumps anything else that's what matters um and you can hold a set of rules that don't just apply to facebook there there are basically goals about what you know good public sphere looks like or good public infrastructure looks like in a democracy and it might be facebook who you know becomes relevant for those and then might stop being relevant for those or twitter might not be relevant now but might one day become relevant but fundamentally what you care about is what does it mean to build infrastructure that's good for democracy i think it helps you to just situate the, the sort of stakes of the competition argument um, and in some ways diffuse it a little bit as opponents you know public utility versus com competition policy I'm not sure, you know, they're both subsidiary to that democracy way of thinking about it. I think that like, as a sort of tangent about how that all applies to Twitter is, you know, as somebody involved in, you know, local politics and um, the sort of tech policy world, like elites in the two countries I know best, the US and the UK, vastly overestimate how important Twitter is to most people and vastly underestimate, in my opinion, how important Facebook is to lots of people. Um, and like, you know, as an example, when I spent six weeks or so in West Virginia, I was amazed at how utterly crucial Facebook as a tool is for all kinds of engagements, interactions, organizations, social, economic, political. And I think that like, you know, people who do PhDs can sort of forget that and see Facebook as this kind of, in some ways, slightly spammy, irritating thing that, you know, we can sort of just unplug from and it's fine um, and check voluntarily and see Twitter as the opposite. Whereas I think actually on a sort of the kind of scale that's really relevant for thinking about this kind of question, it's pretty much the other way around. So I wonder, do you think that there's a role for nationalization in any of this? Like, I mean, you know, there. on the one hand, I, I think nationalizing Facebook or Google writ large is sort of, um, unlikely and maybe even undesirable, but, you know, kind of teasing apart certain core things that these giant corporations do that they don't necessarily have to. So like one of my thoughts is like, you know, there's, there's, you know, as the recent like U.S. anti-monopoly cases make clear, right? Like there's not that much competition in search in part because it's so, so expensive to maintain a web index. Um, and you either, you basically, if you're not Microsoft or Google, you got to pay exorbitant amounts of money to rent the web index. This seems pretty obvious to me that the Library of Congress and potentially, you know, the national U.S. National Archives may be legally obligated <laughs> in certain interpretations of the law, right, to maintain a web index, which then could be free for mm -hmm. use. It would also be way more environmentally friendly um, if we didn't have competing web indexes. Um, you know, you know, so similarly, you know, similarly, something with like Google Maps, where, you know, maybe the state should be involved in that underlying infrastructure, and then there's more competition in the in the, you know, on top of that software or whatever tools to, to make it better for consumers. Um, but, but do you think that do you think that there's a role for nationalization beyond just, you know, regulating as a public utility? Yeah, I mean, given the examples you give, yes, but I never really know what the sort of nationalization frame, set of images, concept gets us that, you know, thinking of corporate regulation in terms of a flourishing democracy, namely the public interest, uh, public utility model 
on the version that I've, you know, we've talked about, doesn't get you. Um, so if we take a step back up for a minute and think about like, you know, the Library of Congress example, or just like Google Books, we can certainly recognize them as already a form of digital public infrastructure, but just subject to private control. And if the question is, should the state sometimes have some pretty interventionist views about, you know, well, should the state have some real concerns about how that's built and how control over its exercise? Yes. And then I think really all the nationalization bit adds is, well, should that ultimately be subject to, you know, the chair of this new regulator or, you know, the chairs of the FTC, or should it ultimately be subject to, you know, Alphabet CEO? And I think that if you hold the sort of public utility status as something that essentially says, well, given the kind of thing this is, it's always ultimately going to be up to the legislature to, you know, set out the parameters of these duties and regulations and so on, who's delegated its authority to this regulator, then I don't know if I don't know if we need to add nationalization on top of that, because I think it already forces us to be asking the right questions and gives, you know, a regulator and the, you know, people, stakeholders involved in in sort of fleshing out what that regulator says, the authority and power that they need to do, you know, exactly that kind of thing. Um, so it's sort of like a yes and a no. The, my my the ner my nervousness about the kind of nationalization framing is that it 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 can sort of take people down a path that, that thinks of it as a binary. This thing is either nationalized or it is private. Whereas really, I think you know what the design of machine learning models that have such a pervasive position in our you know information ecosystem. Precisely the question it poses is how can we be more dynamic in thinking about the structure of corporate power. Um, and how it relates to the administrative state. Um, and I think that, that, that nationalization, unlike say the public infrastructure and democracy framing takes you away from that set of thoughts most often rather than towards it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I wonder too if there's, my thought about the nationalization is there's, then there's implications for who's funding it, right? So if, so if for instance, we had a, you know, a, a US state web index that's that's cost that's technically shared through all american citizens and then therefore that's the logic for why we have rights to regulate whereas the public utility model sort of takes the opposite effect which is that private corporations are controlling this but because it affects democracy ergo we have um rights or we have you know some some claim to be able to to regulate them and i think that's a it's it's a great you know, thought that, I think what it sort of adds, the nationalization way of thinking about who pays for it, is sometimes the state might want to subsidize the creation of particular components of, you know, Facebook's ecosystem of groups or, you know, Google's curation, information curation system. It might want to say, yeah, you know what, we're going to subsidize you to build or, you know, advertise for or whatever this particular thing because we think it is fundamentally a piece of public infrastructure that really matters for democracy. Um, but you can do that without having to think of, oh my God, does the state have to pay for Facebook and Google? Um, I think it can be an and. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And it takes us back to the original like early US infrastructure in which, you know, the corporation was just a method of cost sharing to build. Right. Infrastructure. 
um, that was more effective than just, you know, using taxes and building it directly. Um, okay. So then my last question is if you could um, recommend something to any entity, so it could be the US government, the UK government, some entity within the EU or Facebook as a business, uh, what would you recommend? Okay, I'm gonna. I'm afraid I'm gonna cop out and give a two-part answer, but the same agent. Um, so I would say my target would be Congress or Parliament, the legislature, because legislatures, especially Congress, need to like do more work and actually legislate. Um, and I would say that the part A would be you should create a new regulatory agency. And I do really think increasingly that that is what is needed here for all the reasons to do with cultural, you know, the culture of regulatory bodies, their institutional memory, the nature of data and prediction that is so fundamental to, you know, this whole space. And you should be explicit when you create that agency that its purpose is experimental, that it's going to learn over time and it's probably going to make mistakes. Um, and there's going to be, you know, public regulation costs, as Laura and Econ folks like to remind everybody, and that that's okay, that's the point. So that's part A, is like Congress create new, genuinely separate, you know, regulator that has a defined set of relationships with the FTC and the FCC and so on, and probably would provide a central like hub of expertise around this stuff. And then part B is that like, when elected officials in Congress debate this thing and in general talk about this topic, they don't pretend that they can find some guardrail, neutral, you know, technocratic way out of this problem. Um, they actually like deliberately surface the choices that we have to make, you know, as a society and as a democracy about what to do with these things and, and how to govern them. Um, and I don't ever think you will get an enduring like legislative response to this problem unless we surface and elected officials in particular are like courageous enough to surface the political questions that underpin it, underpin it rather than you know pretend it's just about economic efficiency or non-discrimination. Um, it isn't and they would I think in the long run do well to own up to that fact. Problem is, as we all know, their incentives as elected members of Congress are entirely constructed in the opposite direction. Thanks so much again to Josh for coming on to this episode of the Anti-Dystopians, and good luck defending your dissertation next week. As usual, all of the books, articles, and resources that Josh and I mentioned will be available in our show's show notes so be sure to check them out. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, be sure to subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts.